You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good afternoon, Broadway Podcast Network. My name is Tanya Pinkins. My pronouns are diva and goddess. And you are listening to You Can't Say That. My guest today, could we could say an old friend, an old colleague, but we're not old, <laughs> but um, I worked with them on the first professional play I ever did. And that would be about, gosh, I feel like it's like 40 years ago with the brilliant Larry Kramer. It was a play called Just Say No. It was about one of our other demon presidents, Ronald Reagan. It was during the uh, AIDS, HIV epidemic. And he has been a stage manager. Uh, he stage managed that very, very challenging production. And now he has a new book out called Hold Please, Stage Managing a Pandemic. So uh, please welcome Richard Hester. Hi, Tanya. How are you? <laughs> I'm divine. Where are you in the world? I am in St. Louis, Missouri. And oh. I hate to correct you, but we actually worked together on A My Name is Alice. We didn't do Just Say No together? We didn't do Just Say No together. Oh, my God. Well, I do remember you at A My Name is Alice, but I felt like A My Name is Alice was after Just Say No. A My no. Name is Alice. Oh, wow. That was a show, too. Were you there before me, and did you come in the middle? I, I was there for the whole thing. So you, you came in... Uh, uh, I don't even remember how far into well, it. But I came in, yeah. um, Elena Reed was still there. What was that other one? Yvette or Yvonne or? It was. Jack Elaine. Hay. Oh yeah, Jack, Jack Hay was there. Oh, I, uh, Lorraine, Sur- Lorraine Sarabian. Lorraine Sarabian, Donna Murphy was in for a minute. Donna Murphy. Randy Graff. Suzanne Douglas. Kate must have come after me. Charlene I think she Woodard must have come was after there you. before. Yes. Annie um, Golden came in for a bit. I don't think I was it, there with Annie. It was literally like every amazing Broadway diva went through that show before they were they were sort of divas in training. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great show. It plays well. It plays for everybody. Man, why do I have this memory of you on 
on, I mean, I have whole stories of you on just say no. Okay. So that's all a lie. <laughs> False memory syndrome is real. So uh, have we not worked together since my name is Alice? I feel like we have. I feel like we have, but I honestly don't think we have. I know you've worked with Michael, my husband at Atlantic. The, right. But I don't know that you and I have. We've seen each other on and off. I feel like we've worked together so many times. I guess A, my name is Alice, just put a groove in there. So you've been stage managing for how many years? 40. 40 flipping years. 40 years. And why? Why did you become a stage manager? I like bossing people around. (laughs) Really? You don't seem like a bossy person to me. I've never (laughs) thought of you in that way, but okay, now I know the truth. (laughs) (laughs) I, I early on wanted to be an actor and I just didn't have the skills, honestly. And I was working as a stage manager as my day job while I was sort of pretending to act and going to Bill Esper's acting class and all of that. You studied with Bill? I did. And in the mid... Uh, oh my God, this must be 1983, 84. Wait a minute. So who told you you couldn't be an actor? You or did someone tell you that? Because me. Bill can make anybody be an actor. It, it, I truly. studied with Bill too. Well, and Bill was amazing. I mean, he really was good. But I, I think what I saw was that I wasn't willing to go to the place that you need to go to as an actor. And interestingly... I'm now finding that I can go to that place when I'm writing, where I couldn't do that as an actor, and I kind of probably hid as a stage manager a bit, because then it didn't have to be about me. I could help other people tell their stories. I could facilitate everybody else doing what they were doing, and it was safer. So if what you're telling me is true, Bill must have been in your ass on the regular. (laughs) Well, you know, we're... We were, I I remember doing sort of all these exercises and I was still very conflicted about being gay. I I wasn't remotely in touch with myself emotionally and we'd have to do all these emotional exercises and they just sort of traumatized me. Yeah, because Bill's class, like people get divorced. They, you know, stop speaking to people. Like Bill's (laughs) class, it it gets you to your authentic self and changes your life. So you were like, you were like, nah, I don't want to do that. I'm going to go on the other side. Yeah. And I, I kind of figured out my authentic self by myself. I kind of, it took a couple of decades, but I ultimately sort of figured it out. Well, how did that happen? Well, I, I think I spend a lot of time running scenarios in my head. And I'll run them over and over and over again, kind of fantasy scenarios. Uh, You know, sometimes they're revenge against, you know, something that's happened. And sometimes they're just sort of, this is what I want to do. How do I do it? And, And kind of imagining myself being in charge of something or imagining myself, you know, winning an award or whatever that is. And what would I do? And how would I feel about it? And I... I I spend a lot of time by myself from choice. I genuinely am happy with my own company. And I love a, a long car drive or a very long walk. And so I'll just sort of live through that. And I think over the course of my life, I have in those sort of sessions with myself, if you will, I've kind of 
defined who I was that way in a way that I'm not sure I could have done if I actually sat down to define myself. Hmm. So who are some of the famous people you've stage managed? Well, aside from Tanya Pinkins. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, we know stage managing is really a lot of managing personalities, not just actors, directors, choreographers. They're all, you know, those kinds of personalities. So tell us some of the names. Well, Bernadette Peters, Patti Lapone, Mandy Patinkin, Elaine Stritch, George Grissard, Rosemary Harris. I've been in rooms with Harold Pinter, Edward Albee. I've worked with incredible directors like Julie Tamor, Graziella Danielle, Sam Mendes, Nick Heitner, Des McAnuff, and All of them, I'm not going to say that all of them are difficult at all, because they're actually not. What they are is people who know what they want. And some people find that difficult because they won't, none of those people will be happy with anything less than perfection. And they may never achieve it, but they want everyone around them to at least be on that path with them. And my feeling is, is if I'm doing a Patti LuPone concert, Patti's in charge. I'm hired because I'm good at what I do. I'm not hired because it's going to be easy. Weirdly, stage managing Patti LuPone is as easy as it gets because she is crystal clear about what she wants. I know when I'm right. I know when I'm wrong. There's no gray area. Uh, Give me that anytime. Tell me what it is you do that you're so good at. Okay, well, here's a story. Carolyn Lagerfeld a friend of both of ours. I did a play with her at CSC Repertory down on 11th Street back in the day. And I didn't know Carolyn very well at all. And this was a play called Phaedra Botanica, which was all in verse. It was intense. And there was a scene where Richard Reilly, another actor in the show, came in covered with blood. He'd been mauled by a tiger or something. So there was like very gory and it was set in British India. So I'm in the booth and I've got my headphones on and I can hear my assistant backstage. And my assistant was terrified of Caroline, terrified of her. With good reason. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) With very good reason. So anytime Caroline would get upset about something, she'd just quietly turn on her microphone so I could hear what was going on and figure out how to deal with it. So we had a performance and I had no way into Caroline. I couldn't figure out how to work with her. And we were fine. I mean, we did the show. So we did this performance where there was a photographer taking pictures, which we knew about. We knew it was happening. Carolyn comes off stage at the end of the show and says, I don't know what the fuck they think I'm going to be able to do with that photographer going on. So disrespectful. I can't concentrate. I want the ears of that photographer on a plate. And stormed off into her dressing room and wouldn't come out. So I was sitting in the booth and I happened to be eating an orange. And I thought, okay, I made two ear-shaped things out of orange peel. I put them on a plate. I went backstage. I put a whole handful of stage blood over the, the two ears. I knocked on the door. She said, what? I opened the door. I stuck the plate in. And we were like best friends from then on in. That's why I'm good at what I do. That is kind of brilliant. (laughs) That is kind of brilliant right there. Yes, you made someone laugh. 
you you took all the tension out of that. That's that's kind of brilliant. That's kind of brilliant. I love that story. <laughs> wow. And, 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 and you know, honestly, you know, Elaine Stritch, God rest her soul, was out of everyone I've worked with, she it took me a long time to realize that she didn't want problems solved. She wanted the energy of the chaos of unsolved problems to feed her to get on stage. And that okay. took me a very Tell long time to that. figure so out. So how did you figure that out? And what was the moment that you realized, oh, I'm not supposed to solve this. Give us a story since you're so okay, good at so, telling them. So, so Elaine had this weird little dressing room off stage. It wasn't even a dressing room. It was a nook. Because she and George Bizard and Rosemary Harris had in their contracts that they all had equal dressing rooms. So they were all on a floor, one floor up. Oh my, it was deep. This was deep. So Elaine, this wasn't a dressing room, but it sort of became one. It was like the offstage bathroom and it had like a little vestibule and we put curtains up and whatever. So Elaine never wanted me to knock when I came to collect valuables. She just wanted me to come in. So, because the knocking startled her. So, okay, great. So then I would just started coming in. And then two days later, she said, oh, you're scaring me. You know, I didn't hear you coming. And so the next day I thought, okay, well, I can't knock and I can't sneak in on her. So I sort of shuffled my feet outside her door and came in and she said, can't you pick up your feet? And I was like, okay, there's clearly no winning here. So I'm just going to change every day and do something different. And that's what I did. And I, I, I got along with her, you know, as well as anybody ever got along with her. There was one time when I was calling the show from backstage and, you know, for people who are listening who may not know what that is, it's, it's every light cue and uh, scene change happens because the stage manager says go. And then the person on the light board hits, hits the cue. So I'm sitting backstage at Delicate Balance and calling the show. And Elaine comes up to me in her bathrobe in the middle of somebody else's scene. And she says, would you go to Smiler's for me and get me a bagel? You're the only one who knows the kind I like. <laughs> and I said, Elaine, I'm calling the show. And she said, I'm not on for 10 minutes. You've got plenty of time. <laughs> well, my goodness, you sound so creative with how you do your job. Are there stories like this in the book? Uh, there are. There are. There, there's, and there's a couple of other Elaine Stritch stories in there as well. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So why did you decide to write a book? I didn't decide to write a book, actually. The, when the pandemic started on the first day of the shutdown, everybody was kind of in a free fall panic. And I don't, I mean, as you can tell from what we've talked about already, I, I'm not someone who kind of can let panic reign. Everyone was posting all sorts of nonsense on um social media and they were talking about, you know, everyone was scared about different things. And I I kind of thought, okay, hold on a second. This is what we know. This is actually what we know. All of this other stuff we don't know. We're conjecturing. So stop conjecturing. This is what we know. And if you use common sense and take what we know to the next level, this is, I think, what is going to happen. And I posted that. It was like literally the first day. And There was a lot of sort of discussion back and forth on it, comments and stuff like that. And so the next day, something else happened, and I posted again. I wrote another thing and posted again. And I just had nothing else to do. I'm not someone who can sit on the couch and do nothing. So I started writing a two to 3,000 word essay every day. That became my job. I just sort of did it. My, My friend Rick Ellis, who wrote the foreword to the book, said, at what point did you think, oh, fuck, I've got to do this every day. And I was like, kind of post number 30. And so and that, so that was pretty, but I, I realized that people were actually honestly waiting to hear what was going on. My father had a job writing a newsletter for about chemical engineering. And he would take articles from all over the place, synthesize them so corporations could like get the headlines, kind of like Broadway briefing or something like that. You get the headlines of everything that's going on. And if you're interested in that topic, then you read it. I kind of started doing the same thing. And people started reading it. And people started reading it a lot. And I started getting texts from people when it was late. I'm like, hello, where is it? <laughs> Breakfast is on the table. We need, we need your blog. And I, so I was like, okay, I guess that's my job. And then at some point, maybe a hundred in or so, I, I, I eventually went down to six days a week instead of seven because it really was, I needed a bit of a break. And on the seventh day, I posted pictures of New York that I had taken as I was walking around. And Rick Sordelay, who's a Broadway fight choreographer, yes, I know also Rick. Rick, very strangely, has a publishing company called Sordelay Inc. Who knew? Who knew? Who knew? So Rick, with a novelist named David Blixt, formed this publishing company, Sordelay Inc., to keep David's own historical fiction work in print. And when they got good at it, started helping first-time writers. And Rick and I just talked, and he said, we want to publish you. We, uh, We think that, you know, this is a book. And so I wrote a book. But I did it sort of in weird daily, it, it was a kind of like, I, I guess it's how Charles Dickens wrote. I don't know how daily Charles Dickens book. wrote. So how, how he, did, well, he, is the book, he, does the book contain the blog that, because it seems like you were stage managing the pandemic for the community of people who followed you on Facebook or, or is the book your career or is it a combination of both? It, it, it's the blog. It, it's it's a, basically a daily journal diary. And it it's every day. I decided that I would stop doing it every day after a, a solid year. That seemed like a really good place to... And, and 
I think I was starting to go back to work and it seemed like the end. Little did I know that, you know, two years after that, we'd still be in the middle of it. But, you know, what are you going to do? So I had about 1,400 pages of writing and the book is about 550 pages long. So I did some judicious editing. And I mean, I did a lot of railing against the government in this blog. I mean, a lot of railing. And a lot of it was the same rail. So I kind of tried to rail once about one topic and then move on to something else. And did you so, edit yourself? Yes. Yes. Oh. It, it was a lot. I mean, writing it all was one thing. Going back and rereading it several times was another. And then I recorded the audiobook of it and then had to read the whole thing. Actually, I enjoyed doing the audiobook of my book, but rereading myself, it's like, I just dumped that out. I don't want to go back and re-ingest it. (laughs) 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 Yeah, no, there there is that sort of purging thing. It's like, no, that's supposed to be out. Exactly. So... It sounds like the book was really stage managing your community. How did you filter in stories from your career or did that go into stage managing the community or is that sort of a stylistic, you're, you're merging things? I started also writing about what was going on in our house with Michael and our cat, Ziggy. How did Michael feel about that? Well, there were a couple times where I... He said, That's, that, don't write about that. Uh, you know, strangely, I, I found that the more personal I got, the more people enjoyed the blog. Michael, as an actor who puts himself out there, was completely uninterested in his personal life being there. And so I had to learn how to respect those boundaries and not... And not get divorced. And not get divorced, exactly. Um, and I, th- I mean, there's still, there were a couple of things where he's like, you're saying that you're talking about that. And I was like, I think it'll be fine. And, and it, it I think it all, I, I don't think ultimately anything ended up in the book that he was really upset about, but I wrote a, one of my entries that, and this will sort of tie in with how it was going was about, it was after George Floyd. And I was talking about the audition process. And I said... In the week that George Floyd was murdered during the uprisings? No, well, no. I mean, in, in the weeks that followed that. Got it. Okay. So, so the, the I, I would start sort of examining my own life in light of current events. Okay. And so Michael, in the last couple of years, more and more, was the parts that he was auditioning for were going to men of color. Okay. And... And so I started by saying, you know, Michael is losing parts out to men of color. And then I clarified that. And I, and I said that as the sort of topic sentence. And then I said, but they're not his parts. They're, they're not his parts until he gets cast in them. What's happening is actually that we are expanding our consciousness to allow people who look different to audition for the same roles. And more and more, Michael is still getting the same percentage of work, I think, that he's always got. He's working as much as he ever did or ever didn't. What's happening is that people of color are getting far more opportunities than they ever had before. So he, in quotes, lost work to other white performers before, and now he's 
losing work, in quotes, to men of color. And the end result of that is, isn't that a good thing? Isn't that a thing that we should be celebrating and not worrying about? And so much of what was happening in middle America is people of color are taking my jobs. And they're, and my point in this was they weren't your jobs. They were anybody's job. And you just didn't get picked for that job. It wasn't ever your job. Did you get attacked? There's no, never did. Uh, and I was fascinated to see that in the entire year, I never got attacked for anything. And I was really out there, I think, in, in some of those. And I was tentative about expressing my opinions at first. And then I sort of got emboldened and just sort of said, I'm going to put it out there and let, you know, whoever it was attack me for it. Well, you and know, I, I'm I never the most did. outspoken person there is. I name names out of there. So what was the most outrageous thing you said? You know, I haven't seen the book. She didn't give me the book. I'll have to send you a copy. Please the, do. The... the where you felt like, oh my God, I don't know that I can say this. Like the challenge for you personally. One of the most shameful things in my life was happened when I was a kid in South Africa. And it was a very much of a Master Harold and the Boys moment. We lived with my grandfather for a while. And my grandfather had African house servants. And their kids were the same age as my sister and I. And we all played together. This We were five, six, seven, something like that. And I was literally called master. That was my, uh, that, you know, everyone referred to my grandfather as master and they called me master. I was a five-year-old kid. I mean, uh, at the time- I didn't know, you're South African? My mother's South African, my father's American. Okay. Okay, like, I, this is like news to me now. Like, oh my God, okay, you're a South African. He's an Africana. <laughs> okay okay master so so i had i had all these little toy cars when i was a kid and we would all play together and jablani who was maybe a year older than i was could make great roads in the dirt and we would play car for hours we'd play cars in the dirt so i had this very cheap crappy hollow plastic volkswagen bug it was literally just a kind of shell with two kind of metal wheels on it. And Jablani came up with the idea. He said, I could make this run, I think. I mean, Jablani was, must have been seven or eight. And so he said, I, I think I could make this run. And he said, are you okay if I drill a hole in the side of this car? I was like, yeah, 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 make it run, make it, make it run. So Jablani starts drilling a hole in the side of the car. and I burst into tears because he was, he'd made a hole in the side of the car. And, and it was much harder to get into the plastic, I think, than Jablani ever thought. I went inside and told on Jablani, knowing that I had told him it was okay, and knowing that whatever Jablani said, they would believe the five-year-old white boy over the seven or eight-year-old black boy. I knew that at five. I knew it. And I look back on that. And I wrote about that in one of the essays. And it's truly the most shameful moment of my life, bar so none. You, what happened? He got in trouble. What, he, he, what he, did he get in trouble look like? He, he, had a, he got a whipping from his, uh, his uncle, who was our gardener. 
He got whipped. Did he play with you after that? Yeah. He played with us after that because that was what life in South Africa was. That's what people of color expected of white people. That's that was that was what it was. And, and it it okay. took the distance of being here and being away from that before I mean, I, I don't know how long it took me to figure that out. We moved back to New Jersey and we went to like literally the whitest school that there ever possibly could be. We had 1,600 kids and there was one woman of color in the entire school. I, I, I would love to know what her story was. I don't know how she got through that. But This is fascinating because you're saying at five years old, you knew you had this power. You knew this was your friend. You knew they'd get in trouble. You knew what would happen to them. You knew they'd have to take it. You knew that there was nothing they could do about it. And you knew you'd have no consequences. They would have consequences. They would still have to play with you because they didn't have anything else they'd have to do. And that was normal reality. That is why white privilege is such a disease. Because at five, I knew that. There wasn't anything different around me. That's how everybody there behaved. Right. So you're, in a certain sense, modeling behavior because you don't have the emotional maturity to really fathom all of these consequences. And so you have just cathexed that, you know, when I feel bad, I can project something onto these people and they take the pain of it. And that's my normal. Yeah. Fascinating. Truly fascinating. I'm Tanya Pinkins, and you're listening to You Can't Say That. That was part one of this fascinating conversation with Master Richard about his life and his book, Hold Please, Stage Managing a Pandemic. Come back for part two. For listening to You Can't Say That, the show where you can. I'm Tanya Pinkins, and You Can't Say That is part of the Broadway Podcast Network, produced by Dory Berenstein and Alan Seals, with music by Kat Dale. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast highly wherever you stream. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Tanya Pinkins. And to learn more, visit bpn.fm forward slash y-c-s-t. Stay safe. This is Tanya Pinkins. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now 
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.